Hey folks, it's time for another episode of the High Power Archery Podcast. Today's podcast is on a subject that comes up a lot this time of year, and that's paper tuning. We've discussed it before and gotten into how it's done, and I'll cover that briefly again in this episode. Um, but there's some mystery regarding paper tuning, and there's some misconceptions with it that I thought were kind of important to get out of the way. And that's the whole purpose behind this episode. A lot of people think paper tuning is something that it is not, and I'd like to clear that up if possible. And what made me get started on this was earlier this week, I got a message from Anthony at the Off-Center Archers, which, by the way, if you haven't listened to them and to all my youngsters out there listening, it's not for you. It's more for the adults. Um, it's a really great and entertaining podcast all about archery. It's hosted by Anthony and Stephanie, husband and wife couple who really get into all kinds of things. They are entertaining, funny, you name it. It's a great listen. And his wife actually has a business on Etsy called Shooting Skulls, and they make custom slings and wrist straps and stuff like that. And I got to looking at it the other day. She makes some really wild and crazy-looking stuff. And that also contributed to why I'm doing this podcast the way I'm going to do it when I'm talking about paper tuning because when I looked at all the different ones that she made, I'm like, well, there's a 100 different variations that you can have here. Well, I hate to say it like this, but when it comes to paper tuning, people have a hundred different variations of how they do it. And everyone's going to tell you that their method is the way it is. And it, you know, I have the only way of doing this. It's simply not true. Perhaps first we should start with the definition of what paper tuning actually is. And more importantly, what it's not. So what is paper tuning? Basically, paper tuning is just a way of seeing what the arrow flight coming out of the bow looks like. And you use that as a starting point in your tuning process. Now, a lot of times, depending on what your shooting form looks like, depending on what the bow's capabilities are, remember what I said, each bow, no matter what, they're all based on the same principles no matter whether it's a very expensive bow or an economy kind of bow, they all do the same thing. Therefore, when you paper tune them, they all do the same thing. So you'll be able to see different things on there. We want to see that flight, okay? But it's not the end-all, be-all. It doesn't stop there because if it does, then you're selling yourself short and you're just making bigger problems for yourself. If you accept the fact that the paper tuning it should just be the first start, to get you somewhere, you're going to be a lot better off. Why am I saying that? Because like I said before, you're just checking how your arrow reacts coming out of the bow. Over the years, people have twisted it into being a lot more than what it should be other than a starting point. Other than a starting point. And I give an example of what I'm talking about. So besides paper tuning, you have creep tuning, you have line tuning, uh, cam timing, knock tuning, all of that will affect arrow flight. But the fact is I can paper tune a bow all by myself for a customer or a student, although my students do their own. Don't even get me started on that. Anyway, and I'll get it shooting bullet holes, which are the grand prize for, for anyone who's a tuner or anything like that. You get that bullet hole, you're the man or the lady. Young girl, young boy, whatever you want to call it. 
But the key thing to remember is while I can paper tune that bow for myself, I cannot paper tune it for someone else. Even if I paper tune it using a shooting machine, like a Hooter shooter, it's only mechanically tuned. What does that mean? Well, it means the Hooter shooter, if I'm using that, or a Coop's Bowsmith or something like that, it's mechanical. The machine does the same exact thing every single time. The machine applies a certain amount of force to the riser. It does everything, but it replicates it because it does exactly the same thing every single time. Human beings are not machines. We all think individually. We all act individually. We all have different abilities and capabilities that our bodies let us do. So you cannot be expected to replicate what that machine does. So if you understand the concept that using a shooting machine only eliminates mechanical, but it can't really simulate what a shooter's pull pressure or how they torque the riser does, then you can basically figure out where I'm going with this because now the same thing, I, as a human being, if I paper tune a bow for somebody with me shooting it, I can't mimic what the other person who actually is going to be shooting the bow does. I can get it to a starting point, but I can't say, hey, when when you pick it up, you're going to be able to shoot this thing and get a bullet hole out of it too. Because I've seen it where they said, well, I took it to a shop. The guy paper tuned it, said it was perfect. And I saw him shoot a bullet hole. Okay. Did you shoot a bullet hole on that? No, when I tried doing it, I kept on getting a left hair. Did they adjust it for you? They said, no, I just have to work on my form. That is red flag number one. Stop. Analyze. Go somewhere else. Or fix it yourself. I prefer the fix it yourself approach to this. And it gets me a little fired up because I hear this so much. A shop, a tech, another person, me, we cannot paper tune your bow for you. I can see for myself if the bow is acting normally or something like that. But in the end, it's in the shooter's hands where it has to be done. So now we're going to talk about what paper tuning should consist of. Well, if you ask the average person, they're going to tell you, well, all I've ever seen and all I've ever been told is you stand a couple of feet away from the paper, target behind it, shoot your best form possible, and look to see how it rips. Okay. So as I've mentioned in other podcasts before, I'm going to throw this wrench into the mix right now. That's all well and good that 99.96% of the shops and home tuners and guys who have seen it on YouTube do that, it doesn't give you true results. We've discussed it before. You have arrow paradox. It's what an arrow does when it comes out of a bow. All that pressure causes it to flex and twist and bend. The fact of the matter is it takes more than two or three, even five or ten feet for that to work itself out. 
So picture, if you will, I have an arrow that comes out of a bow. And let's just say if it's slightly weak or slightly stiff, really doesn't make a difference. And when it pushes out, it's in the middle of one of those cycles where it's bending. Well, if you're only a couple of feet away from the paper, you'd expect to see a big rip in the paper. A tear left or a tear right, depending on whether or not you're right-handed or left-handed. Here's the problem. You just recorded the rip coming out of the bow while it's, while it's still in paradox. What you want to see is, what is that arrow doing when the paradox is over? So as a rule, and a lot of people don't have the room, so I say if you can get away to five to seven yards, that's fine for me. Translation, 15 feet, it's fine. Tim Gillingham, who's probably the best at explaining how this works, will go a little bit further. But give it some distance. Give it some time to work out. And then you'll see what the arrow is really doing. But you're not recording it in Paradox. Now, if you have this thing so close to the, to the paper that it's still capturing Paradox, imagine someone, a tech, or like I said, the self-tuner, who's making changes to accommodate it to get to that hole, the bullet hole, but it's in the middle of Paradox. So all of a sudden, you've tuned your rest, and you'll hear people say, well, I had a, this thing is sticking out in almost an inch from the riser when it's only supposed to be at 13 16th or something like that. It's already an inch, inch and a quarter from the riser. I got no more room to go, but I got a bullet hole out of it. Congratulations, you've just tuned it so that you get a bullet hole coming out of Paradox, and it's still in there. But when it gets downrange, if you move that paper to, say, 15 feet, shoot it again, now we're only at five yards, I think you'll see a very different picture, including the fact that you won't see a bullet hole. I know it sounds confusing, it sounds redundant the way I, I just explained it, but the fact is, tuning up close with paper will only get you paradox results. And if you adjust your rest to that, which is what tuning is doing, you're adjusting the rest of the arrow comes out straight, then you just started out with a headache. Also, like I said, if you're relying on someone else to do the tuning for you, you have no idea how much they torque the riser, if they have a gimpy form or something like that. And if their form, frankly, sucks, when they shoot it through paper, it's going to suck the results you get. And when you pick up that bow and you try to shoot yourself through paper, it's going to be a problem. So what I tell people, I, myself, when I get a bow in for tuning, I will put it on my shooting machine. And I will shoot it through paper on the shooting machine. And at 11 yards, I'll know what it's doing. And I will get the, the tune to be mechanically sound. But when it comes to the user, they still have to shoot it. And most of the time, I will not have them shoot it through paper. I'll have them shoot it outside and we'll do a walk back tune with it. Or if the weather is bad or their, their skill is limited, that doesn't mean that we don't tune it any further. What we then do is we have them shoot at a 3D target or a foam target of some kind 
and I see which way the arrow is impacting, and we can adjust that way. But by all means, what I'm trying to communicate across to all of you who are listening is that paper tuning is not the end-all, be-all of it. Because people will say, well, they shot my bow out there, they paper tuned it, shot it in the shooting machine, and they get the same hole impact at 40 yards, whatever it is, or same hole impact at 20 yards. That's great. You're doing it with a machine. And again, I will repeat, you're not a machine. So while you can start your tuning process off with paper tuning, don't rely on it as the only thing you're going to do. There's work to be done. And in that work comes you accepting the fact that you're going to have to do more than just say, hey, I got it from the tech. He said, I'm shooting bull holes. I'm good to go. It really was not meant to be any more than an indicator of what's happening to help you along. Because, I mean, if your hour rest is really off, your paper tuning shows it when you're doing it at sufficient distance, you can get it pretty much into the center. But again, as I'll show on the YouTube videos we're putting together and the tuning videos we're putting together, there are a lot more ways of finding out if your arrow's in center. And some people think, well, I didn't paper tune my bow. I'm not ready to go shoot anything like that. Again, that's taking it to extremes on what you should be doing. So bottom line to everything I'm saying is paper tuning, do it at distance. Do it yourself. If the shop does it for you, ask them to let you shoot through paper at, say, 10 feet. Some shops don't have the room to say, listen, I want to shoot it at 10 feet. See what it does for you. If it doesn't do well for you, have them try to adjust it for you, help you adjust it. But again, if they don't want to hear you, walk away. Do it yourself or start with the, with the walk-back tuning. Start shooting at a targeted distance like I described in another podcast where you can look at the impact of the arrow and adjust appropriately. And that little short excerpt was really all this was about. It's a start. It's not the end-all, be-all. Don't let it become part of your bow religion, which is some people have turned it into. And it really, really makes me crazy. I've seen guys doing it completely wrong. I've seen all kinds of things like that. In the end, everyone will do things the way they want them to do them no matter what. I can only suggest what they should do. I've been doing this for a very long time, longer than I'd like to admit. And I've seen it all. The fact that I do my tuning this way, it's just because I've been through the trials of and tribulations of going down rabbit holes because I wasn't doing it right. And until someone told me, hey, you really, really got to examine the flight of the arrow after it comes out of paradox, that it all started to click. And that was many years ago. So just... Take your time with everything. Accept paper tuning for what it is. It's just a start and go from there. Wow, that just seems like a lot. I went over and over and over for a very simple thing that should only take two minutes. But hey, if it helps people to understand, get the worry out of your head about paper tuning, so be it. And now we'll go to the lighter section of our program. And that is the listener questions. 
and these are always fun. And I got a couple of doozies this week. We'll go first with Lee H., who writes, I love the podcast. Been catching up on them since I first heard about you, and the show was great. I'm practicing for the season opener. I only shoot to 40 yards. I'm hoping to get a lot farther, though, and you are the first person I ever heard say that it's doable and not some kind of pro thing. My problem right now is that no matter what, my shots, my shots keep going left the further out I go. I was following along with your walk back and French tuning instructions, but it's not working. What could be wrong? I'm kind of running out of time. It's now September 3rd. Yeah, dude, you're running out of time. But in this case, I could recommend a lot of things to for him to look at, but he told me that he did the French tuning or walk-back tuning, as we call it, and it didn't work for him. I'm assuming that he did it properly. So what I did is I messaged him back and I said, listen, can you possibly get on Teams or a Zoom call or something like that with me or a FaceTime so I can see what you're doing? And he got a buddy when he was at the range and they called me. I think it was like, my, he's got to be out in the West Coast because it was like 10 o'clock at night in my in my time when he called me. I'm like, okay, I mean, I made the offer. FaceTime me now. It's all cool. Let's just do it. And I saw him shoot, and it took me seeing him shoot three times to know exactly what was wrong. And again, I'm not the great diagnoser Yoda or anything like that. Again, I will reiterate, I don't want to be green. I don't want to be that short. But I looked at his hand. And the dude was holding the bow crooked. I said, the paper tuning, the walkback tuning and all that, it's an indicator of what you're looking for, but your hand position is what's doing it to you. And he didn't understand what I was saying. I said, okay, look, get the palm of your hand, put it to the left. It's got to be sitting to the right of the lifeline when you're, when you're looking from the back of your hand. Set the bow in there. He was actually hanging it like almost to the where the flexing point of your thumb was before it even got to any of the real meat of the thumb pad. And he found it very, very strange. So I said, Hey, you got uh you got anything there you can hold in your hand? It's small. He says, I don't know what. I said, You got a pencil? Take a pencil, wrap it in your three fingers that you got on the end of your hand, stick your hand in the bow, keep those fingers wrapped in there pressed down, which he did. And all of a sudden, when he's shooting, he says, hey, something's wrong. My bow's shooting all the way to the right. I said, well, you adjusted your sight all the way out to the left, didn't you? He goes, yeah. Well, that's because you were torquing the bow so much, you were trying to compensate with the sight. The first rule of shooting when it comes to adjusting your sight is follow the arrow. If your arrow is going left, move your sight more left. Well, what was happening was now when he did this, he's shooting far right because he's no longer torquing the bow. And remember, we started this podcast talking about your form dictates what you're going to see in the paper. Well, if he had paper tuned this bow with that kind of hand grip, the tear would have been nasty no matter how far down range it was. So funny how it linked into this one, you know, me doing this podcast this week about paper tuning, because 
This is one instance where paper tuning could have told you something was very wrong way down the range because you're doing it at 10, 15 feet and you still got that nasty tear. And it's not your center shot because it didn't look weird, but it has to do with you, the shooter. In this case, it wasn't a big deal. I was able to help him out by saying, hey, correct your hand grip. Even got to the point where I said, listen, man, I want you to draw a line on your hand, on your palm. And he FaceTimed me, looking at his palm, like, draw the line right through there. That's where I want you to stick the, the, the grip of the bow and never let it leave from there. Apply good pressure there. Don't let it hang off the side of your knuckle. And in 15 minutes, we had this fixed up for him. And I got to tell you, Lee was overjoyed that this was working because he's been shooting like this for a few years and it never occurred to him. But it's also why he would only shoot to 20, 20 or 30 yards because he probably saw some weird results after that and always figured this is a skill problem. In his case, it was not. In his case, it was a form problem, a hand grip, a hand torque problem. And I'm really happy that we were able to help him with that. But there's a lot of people out there who live with this, limit their range to only 20 yards, saying, I'll never be able to shoot further than that because I don't know how. It's not because you don't know how. It's because you've got something going on in your form, most likely, that's prohibiting you from doing it. And a simple correction opens up a whole new world for you. So, Lee, if you're listening to this, I'm happy you worked out your problem. With any luck, you're shooting further now. Let me know how that's going. And uh, you've got more confidence. And season is knocking on the door. So just get after it. Do what you got to do. I'm happy that we can help you. Our next question comes from Shelly M. And she writes, we were at Willowbrook Park for a family picnic. Willowbrook is where I work out with my students. A week ago, and I happened to see you and your students shooting on the range. I asked one of the guys in the parking lot who you were, and they pulled out their phone and had a pic of one of your business cards. Okay, well, I know a lot of people over there, so it's nice of them to actually give you the info. I have to say I was really impressed how those girls were shooting, and they looked like they were really having fun. As a matter of fact, I think it was a mom and her two kids, of all things. I know exactly who you're talking about, and they've been in a lot of my posts lately because they are really, really impressive, and they've only been doing this a few weeks. About a year ago, I took my own daughter to a place in Brooklyn where you could and she puts this in quotes, learn archery. She was only nine at the time and basically learned nothing. I don't think they really cared either, which was the most frustrating. They said she had focus problems, and probably because she was too young, she was too young, they said, and I should wait till she got older if she wanted to try again. Is this true? Those girls look like they were having so much fun, and one of them looked pretty young too. Could this really be the case? Is she too young to learn archery? Okay. I'm going to try to answer this question for Shelly without losing my temper. Which, if anyone knows me, when it comes to this sort of thing, you'll know that's hard. But these people had the audacity to tell you she's too young to learn archery. And she was nine. For real? They are making excuses for their lack of skill in teaching someone. It's always easy to blame the student. 
if you can't teach someone properly, get out of the business or learn how to do it properly. Enhance my calm. Enhance my calm. There is no such thing as too young to learn something. They're saying she has focus problems. Are they psychologists? No, they are not. I'm sorry. I know exactly the place that she's talking about. And to use a tempered description, they are idiots. I hear it a lot. They do it all the time. They discourage a lot of people. Collect your money, see ya, and go. Fortunately, for most people who have the who have these discover archery programs, like where you can go and try it with no strings attached, they don't do things like this. But this place does. I'm not going to name names. You guys are probably listening to me. You know exactly that I'm talking about you. Let me start by saying my students start as young as four years old. And it's all about what the coach is willing to put into it. You're not going to tell a person that they have a complete lack of focus. Come back when you're older. I'm sorry. That doesn't work. That gets really damn offensive. Because you don't know how to do any better. She wasn't hitting the target. She was having a problem focusing. Come back some other time. You know what that is? Most of the time, and I have a student this week. It's like funny that all the stuff that I'm seeing here like was in stuff that I've been seeing in over the last couple of weeks. That's an eye dominance problem, most likely. Let's say she's right-handed, but she's left eye dominant. She'll have a problem focusing. Not. She just will be shooting with the wrong eye, and she'll be all over the place. So more than likely, while I can't tell you 100% for sure this is what the problem was, that was probably the problem. And as I do with all people that I meet when it comes to this sort of thing, if you want your, your daughter to come try archery with us, by all means, come try archery with us. We don't charge your first time. If you, anyone should be able to try archery. So our program, you come down. You make the appointment, you use our equipment, and you take your lesson, and it's completely free. And I would be overjoyed to have a little girl like that come and shoot with us because while she may have been discouraged the first time, I can promise you she will not be discouraged the second time. And that's basically it when it comes to that. Do not give up. Do not listen to some, wow, I find myself using this term again, asshat from that place who says it's your daughter's problem and not yours. And that's pretty much all I'm going to say on that matter. So, Shelly, if you're listening to this, contact me. We'll get this sorted for you. And we'll get your daughter started on that. And I can't wait to be a part of that. Oh. Calm down, calm down. And our last listener question for today comes from Chris P, who writes, I follow along with one of I followed along with one of your podcasts on release execution and relaxing my hands. The problem is I almost let my release go along with the string, but I managed to catch it before it slipped out. What am I missing here? 
finally, a simple, easy-to-answer question. Well, Chris, your problem is not that hard. It's common when we first tell people to start relaxing your front and rear hands, you may automatically think, just let the fingers go. The actual thing is, when you're relaxing, and if you're in the right knuckle when you're holding your, I'm assuming it's a handheld release, you, your fingers relax, yes, but that hook that you establish by putting, putting the release in your hand, that's going to stay that way. So your hand can be completely relaxed, and it'll still stay in. The problem is some people think that relaxing means letting their fingers go straight. If you let your fingers go straight, then obviously the release is going to slip out. But in this case, you caught it. So a lot of people, they have a problem learning this discipline because it is a discipline. And they're like, well, I can't do that. And they just give up. Don't give up. What I'm going to tell you is very simple. Most handheld releases have a hole. In fact, some of them already come with it. But most of them have a hole where you can put a piece of D-loop or a string, whatever, and make a lanyard out of it. The majority, if not all, of the Carter releases come with little lanyards to go through them, and you can attach that to your wrist. What that does, it gives you an extra security blanket so that if you're practicing this, it won't let go on you, and the release won't slip out of your hand. And you can use that as a crutch, make it extra long, just make sure it's securely around your wrist, so if it slips off, it's just going to pull on your wrist. And you have to be careful with that because... You know, I suggest starting with this, you know, with a release trainer of some kind. So you're doing that and you're relaxing your hand and you're practicing it, just keeping your hand completely dead. And let's just say you did let go of the release. Then all that's going to happen is the release is going to fall out of your hand. Yes, but because the lanyard's there, it's not going to fall to the ground because you're not doing it on a real bow. It's not going to fly through the riser. But it wouldn't fly through the riser anyway because now you have a lanyard attached to it. But what you don't want is that thing is still connected to the D-loop. You release, you relax too much. The release flies out of your hand, but it still attached to the lanyard, and it can actually pull your wrist really hard. You'll, you'll feel all that tension go into your wrist. Depending on what your makeup is, you might hurt your wrist that way. So that's why I kind of say when you first learn this, use a shot trainer, which you can build on your own. Um... And do it that way, or an acubo or something like that. Do it that way where it's not going to hurt you if you do make a mistake while you're learning. Remember, it's all about learning. And as long as you can do that, you're not going to have a problem. Eventually, what will happen is you'll get more and more comfortable with it. The landage is just going to hang there. And you're doing it on your regular bow, and it's not even a secondary thought. But believe it or not, your brain's already programmed not to worry about it. Because you know that if something happens, that release is not flying through the bow because it's just going to be attached to your hand. So that was a really, really easy one to answer. Chris, if you don't know how to tie the lanyard on there, send me a message. I can send you a little instruction on how to make a lanyard for it. If the if the release doesn't happen to have a lanyard hole that you can pop it through, there's another way I tie them on, and I'll be happy to share that with you. So that'll do it for the listener questions. And now we go to our most popular segment of recent weeks. Yes, you know it. Don't be that guy. Now, I'm going to start by saying that as a coach and a tuner, 
because that's what I do. I tune bows, coach people, provide instruction, teach my girls and all my students to do exactly the same thing. I get asked a lot of technical questions by both customers and students, okay? And I do my best to do what I can to make it simple to understand. So this week's Don't Be That Guy goes out to those people, in quotes, air quotes, what do you want to call them, out there that think they know it all. I find this happens both with bow technicians and coaches. Don't be that guy who talks down to a customer or someone at the range who knows less than you, okay? Don't be that guy who insists they know everything and that there is a possibility of anything else they can learn. Don't be that guy. I see way too much of this, okay? The so-called know-it-alls who literally talk down to others because they think they know more than them. And half the time, I hate to say it, they don't know more than them. Or even worse, what they do know is so incorrect, you got no business thinking that you're, you know more, that you're so superior. Being a coach, being an archery tech, requires a certain amount of humility. Whether or not, People want to hear that. I really don't care. People come to you as an authority on either coaching or working on their bow. And that's great. But the minute that you turn into the point where I know so much more than you, you listen to what I'm saying and nothing else, and I don't want to hear anything else, then you become that guy. And that annoys the living daylights out of me. You thought I was going to say something else, didn't you? But I didn't. But don't be that guy who so turns into arrogant and egotistical thinking that he is the end-all, be-all of tuning or the end-all, be-all of coaching. The fact remains, I have been doing this over 30 years, okay? Teaching people how to shoot and tuning stuff with my bow and stuff like that. And as much as I have learned in the coaching, in the tuning, technical aspects, the day I start thinking and acting like an egotistical asshat is the day I got to stop doing this. Because you always have to keep an open mind, treat people as if you would want to be treated yourself, and accept the fact that there's always something else you can learn. Because otherwise, what are you doing? You're saying, well, I've learned all there is to learn. There's no other possibility. Think like that makes you not only a terrible tech and a terrible coach, it makes you a terrible human being. No one should be talked down to. Nobody should be said, oh, your way of doing things doesn't work for me. If you have a different way of doing things, fine. No problem. But don't be that guy who talks down to everybody and says, you're not doing it my way, get out of my face, or you're not doing it my way, you're somewhat less valued than me. Because it's not right, it ain't true, 
and you're going to get nowhere with that. And all you can do is push people away. So just don't be that guy. Be open. Be kind for a change. There's not enough of that going on in this world. Just don't be that guy. Enhance my calm. Yes. Well, that'll conclude today's rant from the don't be that guy. So this was one of our shorter podcasts. I hope you got something out of it. As always, if you have any questions, be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. As we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, be sure to check out the Off-Center Archers for the older members of our audience. Those kids under 18, no. They have a lot of good content, but we have to censor some stuff out of there for you. I'll do that. Uh, Leave that to me. Everybody else, have a good listen with it. Check out Shooting Skulls on Etsy. See all the crazy things that uh, Stephanie has going on over there. A lot of great designs. Couldn't ask for better people. Um, If you have any questions, of course, send them in to us. You can email us at highpowerarchery uh, at gmail.com. You can visit our website www.highpowerarchery.com you know you can find our podcast you're obviously listening to this one so until the next time that we meet it's never goodbye it's until we see you again and until then be safe and shoot straight